Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Catherine Hett, a senior political affairs officer in the UN. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emma. Happy to be with you. So Catherine, you were born in Germany and educated at the London School of Economics and King's College London and Sciences Po in Paris. So what was it that made you want to leave home and become, I suppose, an internationalist? It started all with travels. My parents took us, my brothers and myself, across Europe um, during summer holidays, and they made me really cherish different languages and what Europe stands for, which is so many cultures rolled into a very small continent um, that you can easily visit um, by just crossing borders. Um, So... At school, I I really tried to learn different languages, English, French, Spanish, to be able to to go a bit more deeper into different cultures and learn about others' perspectives and um, what makes them think and click. Um, So then having the opportunity to go to London and Paris, to um, metropolis, to really dive deep um, was a true present um, and just reconfirmed my wish to be international and you know have my roots in Europe, but really explore the world. So you've been in the United Nations for a decade. What does the UN mean to you? And what was it that made you want to work for the UN? The UN, for me, really is a promise. It's a promise and pledge to every person on this planet that they are not forgotten, that they are not alone. And I know that sometimes that seems hyperbole and probably when you're you know, in the midst of a war um, or famine, you, you don't think that there's anyone sitting in New York thinking about you, but that's the UN's promise to everybody. We, we will never forget them and we will do whatever it takes to help. Sometimes that's challenging and doesn't work. And, you know, we need to do better day by day, not give up to really live up to this promise that's enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations, what member states signed up to in 1945. So what does it mean for me personally on a daily basis? It's really having the world in one building and that all our you know, thousands of colleagues that we actually do make it work to, to work as one global cohort of people and, and really trying to make the world a better place. Um, and the first glimpse of that was actually when I visited the UN headquarters in Geneva and I had a fascinating guide, a student who had studies in international relations. And she was the one who made me switch from wanting to become a journalist, reporting about problems in the world, to trying to somehow fix some of them, if I can. So you currently work in the executive office of the UN Secretary General. And, you know, with so much going on in the world, how does the Secretary General decide where to focus his attention and what to prioritise? Being inside the executive office of the Secretary General is is a true privilege. It's like being inside the newspaper or the media, you know, news in the evening. You actually deal with anything that's happening globally and you try to solve some of those issues. And as I said, it's it's some of them are, are so challenging that it's impossible or almost impossible. So you keep trying. But really being there gives you the opportunity to at least be part of it and try. Um, How does ESG prioritize? I mean, a lot of the priorities are actually set by what's happening globally, by 
climate change, by the big questions of our time, like inequality, um, you know, giving every single person on this planet a chance to a dignified life on a daily basis, fixing wars, um, you know, bringing people together as a mediator, facilitator with the Secretary General's good offices. But of course, I mean, he also sets the agenda by alerting member states and globally to problems that are often forgotten. And I think, yes, climate change is not forgotten. It's at the forefront of what is being reported on. But when you think about how it has been dealt with by member states for a long time, it's actually one of those issues that needs global leadership. So for him, when he took office, Mr. Guterres, it was the overarching priority that had to be addressed. If we manage to address climate change, we are going to be able to address so many other global issues that we currently face. So when you reflect on your career in the UN, what's the job that you enjoyed the most and what are you most proud of? I think there are two jobs which are actually very similar. It's um, the role as um, senior political officer to the Secretary General, special assistant, and previously to the Under Secretary General for Political Affairs, a bit like the foreign minister of the UN. In both roles, I had um, fascinating uh, leaders who took me with them on travels um, to crisis spots, to conflict areas, to um, refugee camps, to post-disaster areas, like after tsunamis in Indonesia or hurricanes in the Caribbean. Um, and they allowed me to assist them, help people who had been affected in those areas. And so I was part of negotiations at the highest level, um, you know, trying to provide them with ideas how to overcome an impasse in negotiations. And really, it's, it's such a um, tiny circle that I've been privileged enough to be part of. And if you ask me about my um, you know, proudest moment, I think it's, it's actually when you are able to think that you contributed to solving something that seemed intractable. And I'll give you two examples. Um, at one point, there were white helmets in, in um, a part of Syria that were completely encircled by the Syrian government. And a couple of member states had devised a way of getting them out via a certain member states and then making sure that they could be resettled in their own home countries. Um, however, last minute, the deal fell apart. So they approached the Secretary General asking for assistance, whether the UN could lend our flag, that's what they said, to get them out. So we had to find a last minute deal um, offering part of the UN's good offices as well as the 1951 Refugee Con Convention as a chapeau. Um, so we managed, but it was very tight and it was very sensitive. And of course, there, as you can imagine, there were quite a number of players that would have liked us, that would have liked us fail. Um, and the second moment was going to um, the DPRK, um, Pyongyang, in December 2017, at the height of, of tensions between the United States and um, DPRK. And it was part of a negotiating team led by Undersecretary General Feldman at the time. And we really managed to provide ideas to Pyongyang um, that then I think really lowered the tensions in the coming months. Um, so when we were on the verge of potentially even a conflict, um, I, I think quiet, preventive, good offices actually did make a difference. I mean, you can see 
a direct link between what you were involved in and what then happened or didn't happen in this case. I think that's what you, when you really think it, it does make a difference whether you work or don't work for the UN. Well, there's a lot of talk these days about the end of the liberal world order and the rise of great power competition. What does this mean for the future of multilateralism? I think it's really in moments when multilateralism is being questioned, some say even attacked, um, that we need it the most. It's when it originated in 1945 with the birth of the United Nations. In, I mean, there was no multilateralism then. I mean, there were a couple of alliances that had managed to, to defeat fascism, um, but there was no idea of multilateralism, what it could actually mean in a positive sense. Um, and so I think today, you know, it's a far different environment than what we had in 1945. We've moved on. There's lots of trade relations, other global relations that makes it already a multicultural, multilateral world. Um, however, I think we need to revive this idea of multilateralism actually being in countries' favor and interest rather than being seen as adverse and that they can go it alone um, more beneficially for their own national interests. But I do think what we need to do is to rethink multilateralism a bit. It's a very nation-state focused concept when it originated. And I think what we see today is, is a um, very networked world. It's, it, it includes civil society, private business, um, different constituencies of people, cities. I mean, cities are so critical in addressing climate change, for example. So I think what we need to do is to really rework multilateralism. Um, and by doing that, it should also become attractive again as in a necessary component of how to make relations between member states function better as well as the wider global um, relations between people and their countries. So you've spent the semester at the, on the fellowship at Yale. And would you encourage young people who want to make the world a better place to join the United Nations? I think I always encourage every young person who wants to make a difference to follow his or her passion. That could be the United Nations, that could be outside the United Nations. But I, what I really believe in is, is if you do something that you really believe in and feel passionate about, you'll be really good at it and you make a difference. I would be delighted if some of them decided to join the United Nations and also change the United Nations from within by doing so. Um, should they decide to work with the United Nations from the outside, that would be equally, equally welcome. Um, so I think wherever and however they decide to develop a career, um, anyone who wants to make a difference should just be encouraged and helped on his or her way. So if you had one wish for humanity, what would it be? A big question and a big wish. Um, I think it, it, it's okay for that big question. <laughs> so if I go really big, I think it would be that everybody recognizes or even hopefully cherishes the freedom and dignity of every other human being. Um, and, you know, for me, that would be the basis for ending wars, inequality, and many of the other ills we currently see. And that, in turn, would allow us to tackle climate change and other big global transnational issues. Um, if I had to bit, go a bit more realistic, it would probably be already quite good if we managed to rebuild trust amongst um, countries and within countries, so between citizens and their governments. That would, I think, take us quite a long way.
Well, catch you in the head. Wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much, Emma. Same to you.